This is episode 17 of Free as in Freedom for Tuesday, August 30th, 2011. Hi, I'm Bradley Kuhn. No, you're not. <laughs> I'm Karen Sandler. And I'm Bradley Kuhn. Are you sure? I'm sure. This is Free as in Freedom. And uh, we are back from those conferences we were at. I'm Both of them so now. happy to be home you in went, downtown Brooklyn. You went to an extra one that I didn't go to. I did. I went to OGCAM, um, which was really fun. It was a great conference, good venue, and good crowd. I felt bad for the guys. They wanted me to come, and I was in Europe right before then, so then I felt really bad that I didn't go like you did, which is basically we were in Europe together in Berlin for the desktop summit, and then you stayed long enough to go to OGCAMP, and I did not, and I felt bad. Well, I, I was flying out of London anyway, so it worked out. Um, it was quite convenient. Would you, you just... It wasn't that convenient, actually, to go to Farnham, but it was worthwhile. And uh, don't 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 uh, discredit yourself there. You you held it out. You went to OzCon, then Desktop Summit, then OddCamp. I couldn't make it. I couldn't do the third. I was so fried afterwards, though. Like, so fried. I hadn't... I, I didn't have a weekend in a month, and I was just a mess. But that was already a week ago. Yeah, I know, but... Uh, but, but, but we, we are going to go back in time. Well, it's true. This is our first show uh, since we've been back, though, certainly. Uh, well, actually, it's not our first show since we've been back. There was a show that came out right after that, but we took care of it all before we left because we knew. You were back. I wasn't back. Uh, yeah. Well, that's, did you come back on the Tuesday or no? I can't nope. remember. Okay. So you weren't back yet. I was. But the show came out, and that was a recording from OzCon, which, as it turns out, this is as well. Yes. That's correct. This time we have uh, – we, we are showing – or not showing. We're playing – the talks in the order they should have been. Yes. So the last episode we played the talk, uh, mine and Aaron's talk, right? Correct. So um, where we talked about some of the basic legal issues um, for free and open source software. And in this talk, um, Richard Fontana talks about copyright um, license agreements and assignment agreements. CLA is considered harmful, he says. Yes. And he talks about why that title might be uh, problematic at the beginning. And he also actually gives a brief. You might, w folks who listened to last week's, uh, or I'm sorry, I said last week's, I do that, made that mistake again, who the previous episode of Freeze and Freedom, they may want to speed through like maybe the first like two minutes because uh, Richard tries to give a whirlwind tour of copyrighted stuff basically that Karen and Aaron covered. It was crazy. They scheduled us after him. Schedule. It didn't really make much sense. Um, but yeah, so... Um, so anyway, so but once you get past that, it's all new stuff of, you know, of real interest, I think, to our listener base. They love this kind of policy stuff. Richard Fontana has a really strong policy position, some of which I agree with, some of which I don't, some of which Karen agrees with, some of which she doesn't. Yep. And we'll talk after about that. And you should get on the website if you want to follow along with the slides. Uh, Richard has given us his slides under CC uh, by SA 30 US as is his recording. And... Uh, you can get the slides and follow along if you want to. Okay, so uh, I am going to start, I guess. Uh, so this talk is called Contributor Agreements Considered Harmful. Uh, I should actually apologize for the title because I understand that um, from from Bradley and others that um, X Considered Harmful is now a sort of deprecated style of 
uh, polemic, at least in some contexts. So um, I probably won't use a title like that again. But uh, so I'm, I'm a lawyer at Red Hat. I deal with open source licensing issues. Uh, my experiences at Red Hat have kind of led me to some of the views that I'll talk about today. Um, so just to kind of start out, uh, I want to explain kind of the, you know, how I see the, the situation uh, involving contributor agreements and how they're used in um, free software and open source projects. So I kind of visualize it as, you know, kind of there are these two different layers of legal activity going on um, with typical projects. And I can, you can think of it, think of it as um, different points in time. Uh, I sort of visualize it as like this top layer where contributions are coming in and, and then there's a bottom layer where users are getting code from a project. Um, these two layers are kind of similar in that they both involve transfers of code, uh, it could be other kind of material as well, with um, rights. And so, and I'm going to kind of assume that, that you guys understand um, like basics of copyright, even if that's not true, and it's sort of unfortunate that the next talk is not preceding this one, because uh, uh, Karen and Aaron will probably talk about copyright law, among other things. But basically, just assume that um, when you contribute code to a project, it's probably copyrightable, and when projects distribute code to users, that's probably copyrightable and copyrighted by, by someone, by some group of people, some entity. Uh, that's basically all you need to, to know. I mean, you also have to know that copyright, um, so copyright is a, an exclusive uh, set of rights. So basically it's, um, uh, if I have copyright on something, I can um, exclude others from certain acts, uh, copying, modification, uh, distribution, and certain other things that are less important, we think, for software. Um, so there's um, some similarities uh, between these two layers, the, the, the inbound at the top and then the outbound at the bottom. But there's also some differences. Uh, the, the, one of the similarities is that so often the, um, the transfer of code with rights has strings attached, so there are conditions. Uh, you see that clearly um, when you get code from a project that's under a license, and the license will typically have some conditions, not always. Uh, if it's not has no conditions at all, it might simply be equivalent to a public domain de dedication. Uh, the difference, though, is that in all cases uh, at the outbound side, uh, you have a free software or open source license that is attached to the code, and that's being distributed to you know the public, the general public. At the inbound side, there are various different practices, and it, uh, they vary a lot from project to project. And so, as just kind of an example, just to kind of give you a flavor, um, suppose you have a project that releases its code under the GPL. Let's, let's suppose it's released by some, uh, in a copyright sense, it's, it's licensed by some company or organization under the GPL. Uh, in one case, it might take a patch that is licensed to the project under the GPL. And the consequences of that are, uh, you know, we generally assume that the, that the project is then bound by that the GPL attached to that patch, and therefore the, that limits the how, how the project can license the software downstream, and that, that limits how even you know, further downstream how users can you know, use and distribute the software. On the other hand, if you use something like a CLA with a broad inbound copyright license grant, and I'll get to what that means, that may place effectively no restrictions whatsoever uh, of any meaningful sort on, on the project or the entity that is associated with the project. Uh, so those are two very different kind of cases. Um, so I'm talking about uh, agreements, uh, and, and I see agreements, contributor agreements as a subset, a proper subset of uh, con contribution policies. 
So when I say agreement, I mean what I have in mind is a, a kind of contractual document, a formal contractual document that typically is going to be signed and it's going to have a lot of um, legalese. Uh, and I don't see um, t standard conventional open source licenses as agreements under this definition. Um, they might be described by some lawyers as agreements, but, but I'm using agreement as kind of a, a kind of, it's not really a legal term of art, but I'm using it in a very kind of specific uh, sense. So uh, uh, normal open source licenses are not agreements in this sense, but um, the things that I'm going to focus on are contributor agreements, and those are uh, these kind of contract-like uh, legal instruments. Uh, most projects have a contribution policy, and by, by that I just mean uh, the set of rules which could be implicit or explicit uh, that um, govern how the, the project will take contributions in and what kind of legal rules attach to that. Uh, there are some exceptions to that, but I mean, so, so there, are, there are some, you know, sometimes companies will just kind of drop uh, batches of code and on a one-off basis, and I, I would, wouldn't call that a, a project per se. Uh, there are some, there are many projects that actually are really just like a single developer starting something up and no one has, no one outside of that developer, apart from that developer, has contributed any, anything to that project yet. And so th in those cases, maybe the developer, the single developer hasn't thought about the issue of you know, how they're going to deal with contributions. They probably want contributions in the typical case, but they haven't thought about what the rules will be. Uh, and then there are some projects actually which have a policy of not taking any contributions. That's kind of rare, but, but it, do, it is something that I have seen. Uh, the, but the vast majority of um, open source projects do not use contributor agreements, and that's a very important point. It's something that um, I find that uh, some lawyers who are new to open source don't uh, recognize that. So. Uh, thinking in terms of contribution policies, there are basically three categories that I see. So there's what I call um, inbound equals outbound is the majority practice, and I'm going to explain what that means. And then you have a minority practice, which is to use contributor agreements. Uh, and I distinguish between maximalist and uh, minimalist. And maximalist is the the more common, much more common kind, and I, that's what I'm going to focus on in this uh, talk. And then there are sort of miscellaneous things that are not agreements, the way I've defined agreement, you know, not some kind of formal thing that you're contractually agreeing to. Uh, but it's also not inbound equals outbound, which I am going to explain right now. Uh, so inbound equals outbound is what I call this prevailing uh, my, uh, majority custom that we see throughout um, free software and open source projects, really you know, going back um, uh, two decades or more. Uh, and, and I see this as a reflection of two things. I, I recently um, wrote about, um, the, if you've heard of Project Harmony, the, the canonical-led um, uh, effort to have a, a sort of set of model uh, contributor agreements. Um, I, I wrote an article uh, critiquing this, and I, and I said that, um, that traditionally um, there were, uh, free software projects are characterized by these two legal norms, um, which I call licensor equality and transactional informality. And uh, all I mean by that is that you know, the, all the contributors, you know, all the copyright holders um, contributing to a project are, but are um, uh, treated equal. They're basically equal in a legal sense. Uh, by transactional informality, what I mean is that everything is done in a very informal way. So you're not you know, pa faxing agreements from developer to developer each time you uh, submit a patch to a project or commit to a repository. It's all done very informally very implicitly. There's lots of implicit licensing going on in free, free software, and I, I think this is important. Uh, 
to understand uh, implicit copyright licensing and uh, implicit patent licensing is a very well established uh, concept in, in the law. And um, it's really the only way to understand exactly what's going on in the typical free software development project. Um, so by inbound equals outbound, I, I, it's, I see it as a consequence of these two um, traditional norms. So, so basically the idea is that um, contributions are understood to come in under the license of the outbound license of the project. So if it's a GPL, GPL license project, the uh, contributions coming in are understood to be under the GPL. That's inbound equals outbound. There's another way of looking at it, which makes more sense for some projects, which is that um, the contributor is putting a, typically so the contributor is putting an explicit license on their contribution. And the outbound license of the project is sort of this conjunctive set of lots of different licenses. And we see this a lot actually in um, permissive license projects. A lot of the older ones are like this, where there's like lots of different variations on the MIT license or the BSD license. And, and there isn't really one single license, but they're all kind of very permissive licenses. So that's kind of the same idea. You're just, the, the project is passing through the license it got from the upstream uh, contributor. Um, one thing to note about this also is that it's a pure uh, floss, pure free software solution. So it only involves um, free software licenses, open source licenses. It doesn't involve any kind of extra categories of contracts or anything like that. Uh, usually this is not documented explicitly by projects because it's, a, as I said, it's a custom. It's a tradition that's well established. If you, if you, you know, contact project developers and ask them about this question, you know, what is the, what do you think that the license of patches coming into the project are? If it's a GPL license project, they're going to say, oh, of course, it's there, it's GPL. It's an Apache license project. They'll say it's the Apache license. This is, you know, every time I have. Uh, you know, done exactly that. That is the the uh, you know, the answer I get. So, so I just sort of come to this kind of anthropological conclusion about uh, the way projects work is that there is this understanding, even if it's not always explicitly documented. Sometimes it is. Um, another thing to um, note is that most contributors don't put an explicit license on their contribution, but that's that's fine because that's as I said, there's um, implicit licensing is a kind of a bedrock feature of free software development. So there's nothing wrong with that at all. Uh, so the minority approach is, or a minority approach, is to use um, contributor agreements, and particularly um, what I call maximalist ones. And there are two categories, um, copyright assignment and uh, CLAs, which, which uh, there isn't any kind of standard uh, definition of CLA. It, I, I think it, the, the usual expansion is contributor license agreement, and uh, that's how I think of it, and typically, the things that, that I call CLAs are things like the Apache CLA and things that resemble it that are being used a lot uh, that typically um, have a very broad inbound copyright license grant. So, and I'll get to that. But um, so those are the two categories. of and, and the reason why I call it maximalist is um, because of the degree of transfer of power from the contributor to the entity. You know, let's think of it as a company uh, or it could be a foundation or, or some other party. But uh, the degree to which um, there is um, rights are being transferred uh, inbound. So, you know, it's sort of obvious with copyright assignment that you're transferring as much as possible. You're transferring all your copyright rights. And uh, it's also maximalist in the sense that um, risk is shift upstream to the contributor, which is not the way open source licenses typically work. Uh, typically, open source licenses are careful to shift risk away from 
the licensor. Uh, so there are, there are uh, disclaimers of warranty and um, disclaimers of liability and things like that. The, the, the general approach of free software licenses is, you know, don't sue us for giving you this uh, contribution that we're giving you for free, free as in freedom and free as in beer typically. Uh, but uh, maximalist agreements depart from that. They have provisions that, that shift risk to the, uh, to the contributor. And also they're maximalist in the extent to which they, they don't use like natural free software licensed materials. They use different kinds of approaches, these contractual approaches I've referred to. So um, copyright assignment is the, the better known one. And as I said, this is a complete transfer of uh, ownership. Uh, so uh, you know, when you completely transfer ownership of copyright, there's no intrinsic uh, constraint on how, uh, how the copyrighted material can be used uh, outbound by the project. So it's a total, you know, you're, essentially you're selling your rights to another party. It may, you, it's generally not for any money, of course. Uh, so this is, um, this practice is associated traditionally with the FSF uh, for some of the GNU projects, but is also used by some companies, uh, especially those that have um, dual licensing business models or what Bradley calls um, proprietary relicensing business models. Uh, the, there are the, the copyright assignment agreements that the FSF uses, and also the one, uh, there's one called the fiduciary license agreement, which is really a uh, kind of copyright assignment that FSF Europe uh, uh, helped draft. These actually try to constrain in basically contractual ways how uh, the software can be licensed uh, by the recipient. But those are not typical. Typically, um, and, and they're not kind of easy to draft either. So because basically you're transferring all copyright rights, and, and it's very difficult actually legally to, to find a way to then, after the fact of transfer, to sort of constrain and, and how that uh, material can be used. Uh, so, so typically, so usually copyright assignment is used with GPL uh, projects, I have found. Uh, and I think there are reasons for that. Uh, relating to, um, uh, you know, when companies use copyright assignments, uh, it's usually because of the, the, the dual licensing business model where, you know, they offer a GPL uh, open source or free software version, uh, I guess I would say open source, and, uh, and a, a proprietary commercial version. Uh, typically, these agreements have other features as well. Uh, so they, um, they, they usually grant back a very broad copyright license to the contributor, but it only covers the patch. It's not a copyright license to the whole work uh, uh, released by the project outbound. So, so you're not getting, um, you're only getting a, a, very, a very broad license to the ver whatever you contributed and nothing more. Uh, there's usually a, because copyright assignment actually doesn't work uh, in some countries, there's, uh, in, at least in better drafted copyright assignment agreements, there's a fallback um, copyright license grant, which is kind of interesting. So in Germany, uh, apparently you can't really assign copyright. So, so uh, well-drafted copyright assignment agreements will take care of that. Uh, often there is a patent license also granted by the contributor. Uh, but I have never seen a copyright assignment agreement in a, associated with a project where there has been a, a reciprocal patent license granted back to the contributor. So it's always one-sided. And as I said, you know, provisions shifting risk to the contributor. Uh, and then CLAs. So CLAs really are very much like copyright assignment agreements. Um, the formal difference is uh, instead of transfer of copyright ownership, there is the contributor keeps copyright on what they were going to, what they were, um, uh, contributing and they're granting the broadest possible copyright license to the um, 
to the organization that is associated with the project. And you know, so are there any real differences between CLAs and copyright assignment? There are some, arguably, there's, I, I will mention this issue of standing later, it's, it's, but there's also, um, I have heard lawyers say, some lawyers, one lawyer say that, that uh, the reason why his, the company he used to work for uh, went with copyright assignment instead of a CLA was because, well, this, there was this feeling that the actual transfer of copyright is more absolute and more uh, less vulnerable to possible attack uh, at some you know, future time, whereas a license is always going to be, there's always going to be some kind of basis for attacking it by, I guess the concern is that the, um, the contributor might later on try to revoke the license. And uh, it makes, it, it's, it's not, I'm not sure if that's really a real world concern, but it does, you know, it makes some sense, I suppose. The, um, the Apache Foundation is really the uh, uh, organization most closely associated with uh, uh, CLAs, and their, their particular CLAs have been very uh, influential, and many companies have been using adapted versions of their uh, CLAs. And another interesting thing about CLAs is that there is a lot of confusion about what they are. So a lot of, um, there's a lot of opposition to copyright assignment um, in the uh, free software and open source community, developer community, but many, many of these opponents uh, see nothing wrong with CLAs, it seems to me, and even though they're, they basically raise the same issues. And there are some, uh, on the other hand, there are some developers who see CLAs and say, ah, this is a copyright assignment, I, I don't like this. And that's sort of wrong, but also right, because the consequences are so similar. Uh, and I also think that uh, there are companies that uh, may be exploiting the, this, this confusion, that there are companies who, who are sophisticated enough to realize that uh, you know, there are developers who don't like copyright assignment but don't get that CLAs are pretty much the same thing, so they will use CLAs in almost a, sort of a deceptive, deceptive uh, way. Uh, so I, I just want to sort of briefly uh, mention that there are also these what I call minimalist agreements, so they're very uncommon. Uh, so, so, for example, the um, Eclipse and Mozilla com, uh, committer agreements are basically, you know, there's like a lot of legalese, but basically the, the committer is agreeing to use, uh, to inbound equals outbound in a formal way. So it's a, it's a contract, but it's basically saying I agree to use, to put the, in, the outbound license of the project on my contribution. So it's, uh, you know, contractualization of inbound equals outbound. Uh, there's a Python uh, contributor agreement which says, you know, you can choose to license in your contribution under the, uh, the uh, AFL, which is a, a permissive license, or the Apache license, and the Python Foundation uh, picks uh, an open source license on the outbound side. But typically, uh, so, so currently the Python Software Foundation license is the license they use, which is also a permissive license. So it's, it's kind of, you know, permissive inbound, permissive outbound. So it's, again, kind of like a contractualization of inbound equals outbound. Uh, JBoss used to use this uh, agreement that was very short and basically just was equivalent to a, an LGPL license grant to, um, to, to JBoss when it was uh, an independent company. And uh, another one that I actually helped draft, uh, the Fedora Contributor Agreement, which is a, a new agreement, uh, it, it's very interesting. It has a, um, a, it says by default your um, contributions are licensed under certain designated licenses, the MIT license for code, but you can opt out of that default licensing scheme by picking uh, a, an explicit license. So you can put GPL notice on your contribution and that way you can opt out of the, uh, uh, of the default licensing scheme. And there are other approaches as well that aren't really agreements. So um, Civi CRM has this policy it documents of AFL inbound, permissive inbound, AGPL outbound. Uh, there are some projects, yeah. Oh, okay. Oh, that's good. 
Yeah, so there are some projects that say, you know, contributors can have a, have a choice. Um, KDE does this. Uh, it says, it, so it basically comes down to inbound equals outbound, but if you want, you can assign copyright to the KDE nonprofit entity. There are many of these projects using maximalist agreements that's, that recognize, you know, you don't need any kind of um, uh, maximalist agreement for uh, very small contributions, and the FSF is an example of this, actually. Uh, and then there's the Linux kernel uh, developer certificate of origin, which I also put in this category. So the, the basic rule of the Linux kernel is inbound equals outbound, and the DCO is just this documented policy that you have to sign off on your patches to the kernel, and the sign-off is supposed to indicate that you, you're certifying, in, in some sense, that um, you have the right to, either you wrote this yourself, or you otherwise have the right to, to submit this patch under, under some, you know, whatever the license is, it doesn't actually specify the license. So it's actually a kind of supplement to inbound equals outbound, in a very lightweight sense. So um, why do I think maximalist uh, agreements are bad? So there are uh, several reasons I will go into. Um, some of these apply to the minimalist agreements as well in a, in a weaker sense, but not all of them. And, and my assumption in, in all this is, is that um, th there is this natural uh, free software community development model that has good social and economic effects. And that, ha you know, so inbound equals outbound is, is sort of like the natural approach that evolves naturally from the, when projects are sort of left alone to kind of develop. Uh, governance rules naturally, and that these produce good effects, and that these um, use of these kinds of agreements represent departures from from that. Uh, so, so first is this idea of inequality. So, so you know, I said traditionally there's this this legal norm of equality, of license or equality. So, so uh, maximalist agreements. Uh, uh, depart from that, they actually uh, create a, a, a regime of legal uh, inequality. So, you know, there is natural inequality in any project because there are going to be some uh, participants in the project that have more kind of, you know, reputationally or, or skill-wise will have more power than others, uh, you know, in terms of the amount of code they've developed. Uh, so that's sort of a fact of life, and there's no way of avoiding that. It may not be a bad thing, but, but I think that it's, it's tolerable uh, in the natural uh, setting because with inbound equals outbound, you reduce the, that inequality, and you, you know, potentially, potentially you, any uh, uh, contributor uh, can, you know, is treated e uh, uh, legally equally to, uh, to, uh, to an inbound uh, project entity. So, so basically all, you know, all um, licensors into the project, whether they're, you know, you know, kind of a submitter of a patch who's sort of on the outside of the project or a, one of the main project developers on the inside of the project, they're illegally treated equally. Well, use of maximalist agreements um, are a departure from this. Um, they give greater legal power to one privileged entity, um, a company or an organization of some sort, and, and they signal that um, you know, everyone else is sort of a second-class citizen. And I think this has uh, very damaging effects that, that, that we've seen. And you know, the worst case is, the, is again, this, the dual licensing kind of um, setting where, so, so it's sort of like this obvious uh, case of unfairness where one company uh, has the right to grant GPL licenses and proprietary licenses. Uh, everyone else has to use the project under the GPL and doesn't have that licensing power, that, that privileged licensing power that the um, inbound uh, entity, the company had. Uh, and so this tends to lead to you know, control by a single company or other you know, entity, it's usually a company. And, uh, and, and this can be a bad thing. So you know, this, this um, inequality uh, can mean um, uh, an imbalance of allocation of rights, and that can mean that the project is actually kind of dangerous. Like, you know, you, there's something kind of safe about this um, traditional regime of uh, equality among licensors. If one 
one uh, very uh, you know, powerful uh, entity within the project community has more power than others, you, uh, there's a sort of situation of danger that can potentially occur. Uh, the other, you know, I also spoke of the tradition of um, informality in, in open source projects. Well, these, this is also obviously a departure from uh, use of maximalist agreements departs from this. Uh, so, uh, you know, and this is well known. So, so these maximalist contributor agreements, actually all contributor agreements pretty much introduce um, red tape and, and delay and, and so forth um, into the development process. They, they, um, they, they increase transaction costs for development. So uh, I have found this uh, at Red Hat in particular, you know, we, we had uh, some situations where we were negotiating with companies over either their contributor agreements or our contributor agreements. Uh, uh, in some cases, the negotiations went on for months or even like over a year. And it's, this is not an uncommon situation. Uh, and you know, at, at Red Hat, we often talk about uh, this uh, you know, philosophy of upstream first. We want to get all of our uh, all the changes we make upstream to projects, but this actually very much interferes with that process because uh, it, it, these, if contributor agreements are really bad, if the upstream project is, uh, you know, requires a contributor agreement that's, that's really bad, it, it sort of prevents or at least delays getting the changes upstream, which has bad, you know, uh, effects from a, you know, sort of software development perspective. Um, and these two, two factors then in, in turn have, um, you know, they have bad effects. So, so they, they uh, have, they impair community building. So, so they create disincentives uh, uh, for outsiders to participate in the project. They, um, uh, you know, the developer community is narrower than it otherwise would be. That tends to limit the focus of the project. That means the user community is going to be narrower. There's going to be less user adoption. That in turn means the potential pool of interested contributors is going to be smaller. So there's all sorts of effects. You know, this has been talked about a lot by, um, by people like Michael Meeks. He wrote a very uh, influential essay on, on copyright assignment that, that talks about these issues, um, particularly in connection with open office, which he, you know, he experienced. Uh, there are um, incentives to fork, either in a full or partial sense. And this, this is also a bad thing uh, in general, uh, often. It, it tends to lead to you know, wasteful uh, implementation on both sides of the fork. Uh, so, so, you know, again, t accepting my uh, assumption about the, the good things about the open source community development model, these, these agreements, um, uh, you know, uh, cause sort of toxic effects on the community building aspect that is key to that model. Uh, the other, other thing that I think I may have been the first person to point to, although I've heard other people talk about it since then, is this idea that, um, so these maximalist agreements are, they don't use open source licenses. They don't use free software licenses. They use these new kinds of, you know, different kinds of contractual legal documents and that are very different from uh, open source licenses. And by doing that, it's like, it's imposing this very foreign layer on top of the, um, you know, what you see on the outbound side, which is you know the use of familiar, usually familiar, open source licenses, and to me that seems to suggest that you know there must be something wrong with open source licenses that they're not good enough for the inbound. Why are they good enough for the outbound but not for the inbound? So so people advocate for uh, these kinds of agreements have not you know satisfactorily uh, explained this, and this is this is I think at the very least it sends a kind of bad sort of legal message to the um, you know to the world that that um, that these licenses are somehow good enough on the outbound side but not good enough on the inbound side for some reason that is not specified uh, and then finally you know there there are um, ethical concerns that I see so uh, this tends to arise with um, um, 
uh, individual contributors, not you know, rather than corporate contributors, and, uh, and an inbound entity that's a, a commercial company of some sort. So, so typically, you know, there's a there's a big imbalance of bargaining power. So, you know, with corporate contributors, you can you know you can engage in protracted negotiations over bad agreements. Um, you know, we've done that at at Red Hat. You know, corporate contributors are going to have access to lawyers. They're going to understand what some of these kind of scary or strange provisions mean, or they're going to recognize whether something doesn't make sense or not. And we've been able to, at Red Hat, you know, we, we sometimes uh, are able to uh, negotiate away some of the worst uh, provisions of these agreements. But an individual developer who's not affiliated with a uh, corporation or doesn't have access to a lawyer is not going to be able to do that, typically. So it's kind of an ethical issue to me, you know, because the, the, the project that, that is imposing this requirement um, will typically have greater legal sophistication and greater bargaining power than the contributor. Uh, and it's sort of, you know, in the worst case, I think it's sort of taking advantage of the um, inexperience and the lack of legal knowledge of the contributor. Uh, and, and in this respect, I actually think that CLAs may be worse than copyright assignments because of that fact that I mentioned, that, that developers don't see there are a, lot, are a lot of developers who see that copyright assignment is, is a problematic thing, but I think there are, some, there are some subset of those developers who don't quite see that CLAs are pretty much the same thing. Uh, so uh, I do have time to try to refute uh, uh, some of the, the main arguments in favor of these uh, uh, maximalist contributor agreements. Uh, I think there are basically four arguments, coherent arguments, that I have heard. Um, the, this one that we've heard a lot, and I, I had to try to fit the whole argument onto one slide, is this argument that you need, it's specific to copyright assignment. It's not, it doesn't apply to CLAs, actually. And in fact, the fact that CLAs are being used sort of undermines this, the whole case that you need copyright assignment. But, so the idea is that you need copyright assignment to enforce your license, that you won't be able to enforce the GPL if you don't have copyright assignment. Uh, this is actually something we've heard from the FSF in, in, in a sense. Uh, uh, and there are, there are companies who use copyright assignment who say, well, you know, we're only doing what the FSF does. The FSF, of course, the FSF is different because they promise to keep their uh, you know, contributions free. But, but they say, well, the FSF says you need copyright assignment for enforcement. So that's, you know, that's why we need copyright assignment. Well, there's sort of like a germ of truth to this, but it's mostly, I think, um, Bogus. So there's, there's one aspect of this is standing to sue for copyright infringement. So it is, it's true that if you just get a license, you can't bring a lawsuit on that copyrighted material uh, for copyright infringement. You, you could have some other kind of claim, perhaps, but you can't sue for copyright infringement. But the um, recipient of that code can create a derivative work or a, a collective work, so sort of building on that copyrighted material but adding some new stuff. And you're going to have copyright on the new stuff. And you can sue for copyright infringement on the new stuff. So this is not a serious argument, I think. Uh, the other argument is, is this joinder argument. So this is um, under um, US copyright law. Uh, if you bring a copyright infringement lawsuit, a court can uh, require the inclusion into the lawsuit, and this is called joinder, of um, third parties that have some kind of interest or claim in the copyright that's at issue. Uh, and for this to make this argument to make sense, I can't really do this 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 justice in the amount of time we have. But but for this to make sense, uh, it assumes that the contributor and the contributee are what are called joint authors in U.S. copyright law. Uh, it's under some circumstances, two people who helped create a work are considered to have an undivided copyright interest in the whole work. Uh, it doesn't. The argument doesn't make sense otherwise because. Um, 
the reason for joinder is you want to get into the lawsuit everyone who might possibly be able to grant a license to the defendant to because if you can grant a license to the defendant the defendant can get out of the lawsuit well if you're not a joint author if you don't if you only have copyright on one little piece you're not going to be able to get the defendant out of the lawsuit so i don't i, I think joinder assumes that there's joint authorship but notice that um, I said that under all of these copyright assignments you always get a, a grant back license so um, if they're joint authors and you're getting a, a grant back license then you're getting a license to the whole work so you even though you've assigned copyright you can um, uh, if you're a joint author presumably you can grant a license to excuse infringement uh, by the defendant on the whole work um, so this, if it's confusing, it's because it doesn't, doesn't really make any sense. It, it, that, you, you know, the, obviously these copyright assignments aren't intended to give a license to the whole work. But, uh, but that's the only way to make sense of this jointer argument. So there is, the only truth I think there is to this um, argument is that, uh, uh, you know, the larger your copyright interest, so the more uh, code you have copyright over, the um, the stronger your case is probably going to be in court if you're suing for copyright infringement because uh, a defendant could try to attack this piece or that piece or the other piece, but there's going to be something that's going to survive attack. So there's, there's a sense, a weak sense in which it's true, but you don't have to own copyright on the whole thing. You, you may have to own copyright on a sufficiently large piece to, to uh, bring copyright, enforce, a copyright infringement suit. Uh, another argument we uh, hear is... Uh, uh, relicensing is need, is a reason for why you need these kinds of agreements because uh, these agreements you know whether they're copyright assignment or CLAs they give you enough power to change the license so this is actually one of the better arguments I think but I also think it's not that strong in the end so so today so it, this only really applies to the copyleft case so it doesn't really apply to permissive licenses today because today um, people are only you know for new projects you're only using standard permissive uh, open source licenses like the BSD license, the MIT license, the Apache license. These are all uh, GPL compatible. They're all compatible with proprietary licensing. So uh, this is really only an issue, you know, they basically let you do anything you want with the code. So there's only really an issue with copyleft licenses, where the copyleft license doesn't allow you to migrate to some other license, whether it's also copyleft or maybe you want to go from copyleft to permissive, which is a situation we've, we've uh, encountered at Red Hat. Few times, and uh, you know, um, my, my reaction to this is, you know, I'm not that sympathetic to this. I mean, I think projects should try to get their license right the first time around, and uh, you know, try to pick the right uh, copyleft license if you want a copyleft uh, policy, and uh, you're you should use a license that has an or later clause because pr uh, license stewards do improve their licenses over time; they fix problems in license over licenses over time and so you know GPL is usually licensed GPL two or later GPL three or later um, there are many other um, copyleft licenses that have built in or later clauses so if you use one of these licenses you can always benefit from that uh, you know the MPL is about uh, you know in some point in the near future going to release a new version of of the Mozilla public license so so uh, you know that's a good idea but but I, I'm not too sympathetic for this idea that you know projects should be able to reserve the freedom to totally change um, licenses very easily at the flip of a switch. I, I think that projects should be very careful about what license they pick the first time around. Uh, if, you, if you do want to just flip a switch or exercise the nuclear option, as, as I've heard it called, 
I think that without consulting the community uh, around your project, I think that shows your project has a problem because you don't have a community that you're concerned about. Uh, you know, at Red Hat, we relicensed um, Fedora documentation, and we had the legal power to do this with um, an old version. It was an Apache-style CLA, uh, which we no longer use uh, for Fedora. But uh, we didn't actually flip the switch. We we had a process. The Fedora documentation team went around contacting all the past uh, contributors to documentation, asking if anyone objected. So you know, you know, well-run uh, community projects won't actually exercise nuclear option. And the other thing is that, you know, it's not usually that difficult to undergo the relicensing process. I mean, if you think that you need to get consent from all past copyright holders, which is kind of the cultural understanding, at least, um, it's, not, it's not that difficult. You know, we, we've done it uh, a bunch of times. Uh, the, uh, the other argument I hear is uh, this one, this, I usually hear this from developers, actually. Uh, that that um, contributor agreements uh, protect the project. Uh, you need copyright assignment because it will protect the project, or a CLA will protect the project. So it, it's never quite clear what this means or what you're protecting the project uh, from. I think it, is, it, it assumes uh, uh, an atmosphere of risk that doesn't really um, exist in the real world. Um, you know, I, I don't see a lot of um, contributors revoking licenses. It's, that's a very rare thing. Uh, you know, I, it's very rarely happened, you know, at least in, in terms of like what's public knowledge or what's my own personal experience. Basically, um, contributors to open source projects know that their, their licenses are supposed to be irrevocable as long as they're complied with. Um, so, so, you know, inbound equals outbound, um, you know, and you, if you pick the appropriate license, it's really all the protection that any community should need. Um, and, and what do these agreements really give you? So they give, for, in the typical case, they're giving a project these contract claims against individual developers that don't have any um, assets anyway, typically, that you can kind of recover damages from. So even in the worst case, I mean, you, you know, so these, these agreements will have like representations and warranties, these things called reps and warranties that say, you know, I, I uh, have the right to contribute this, my employer doesn't have any claim on this. Uh, typically, an individual uh, contributor is not going to know that for sure. But, but you know, even if, the, even if you can imagine some kind of doomsday scenario, what can the project really do uh, in that kind of case? They can't, they're not going to sue the individual developer. So this is not really worthwhile. It may make sense for the corporate contributor, right? But, but the corporate contributors are the ones with the bargaining power to negotiate these things out of the contributor agreements, typically. So I, I don't think it's a strong argument. And then finally, there's this business argument. So this is, you know, this is associated with the, the, the case for the dual licensing business model, which I think is very ethically uh, problematic. And, um, and uh, the assumption is that to do this kind of business model where, uh, you know, only one company can offer, you know, both GPL and a proprietary license, you know, associated in the past with MySQL and Trolltech. Uh, the argument is that, you know, so there's a strong case, which we've heard from Mark Shuttleworth, that this will entice uh, uh, pr proprietary software companies into the uh, Linux ecosystem, and you know because they'll make lots of uh, money from from the dual licensing business model. I, I, you know, I, I don't I, even if I take this seriously. I think this is this is just kind of it, it doesn't matter because I think these business models have done a lot of harm to the reputation of the GPL. They, you know, I, I just don't. Everything that I hear and see shows that they're dying out anyway, so I don't think this is a, a strong argument. There is a weak case that I have heard that if you use a scary contributor agreement, 
you know, a company is going to feel more comfortable open sourcing code that's been previously proprietary. Again, you know, it, it's, not, it's, not, it's not worth it. These companies should not be involved in open source software. They should maybe, or at least in terms of like releasing their own code, they should maybe start contributing to upstream projects, but they're not ready to, to uh, sorry, to, to start um, uh, releasing their own code if they, if they need to, to adopt scary contributor agreements just to feel comfortable doing that. Uh, so uh, that, is, uh, that is it. My, my conclusion is that you know, inbound equals outbound is, you know, it's the natural approach. It's probably the natural approach for, for a good reason. Um, it should be the default choice for any uh, open source project. It is a good idea to document it formally. Um, this is something that most projects don't do, but it's not a bad idea to just kind of, you know, if your project has a website or something like that, or has some kind of uh, FAQ for contributors, why not say, you know, this is a GPL license project. If you, we want your patches. Your patches are going to be under the GPL. That's all, all you really need. Um, I think any possible benefits to the maximalist contributor agreements are far outweighed by the harm they do to this community development model. And I also think that, uh, uh, I do think that we should continue to experiment with other approaches. I think minimalist agreements, you know, we haven't seen uh, uh, very much experimentation with those. I think that's worth, uh, worth, worth looking at. Um, uh, other kinds of alternatives, you know, things like the DCO, you know, it doesn't have to be inbound equals outbound. It can be uh, lighter weight alternatives to that, you know, uh, it could be contractual things that are, that are not maximalist. I think there should be experimentation, but, but I, I, I think, uh, you know, that's about as far as I think we, can, we, could, we should go. I, I think that experience has shown that uh, the maximalist, you know, copyright assignments and very broad CLAs have, you know, they do more harm than good. And so I think that we should be moving away from that and companies and organizations uh, uh, that use them should be moving away from that. And uh, I think I'm out of time. So I, you know, I, I really enjoyed Richard's talk and I thought that there was um, a lot in there. And since that talk, since it was a couple of weeks ago, there's been a lot of discussion about this topic. Um, in part because you and I were on a panel about copyright assignment at the Desktop Summit. That's right. And uh, I, the, as, as at the time of recording, the video is still not available. I did talk with a couple of the Desktop Summit organizers. They still are planning to do that. It's just been, it's been logistically difficult for them. So hopefully there will be video of that panel, uh, which also discussed this issue. Um, but uh, Richard's talk really is just giving his personal view, uh, basically, of what he well, so the reason why I brought that up is because there's been opportunity for you to give your personal view um, since then in the, on the panel, but I have not had much public opportunity to talk about my view. So Karen Sandler, what is your <laughs> view of copyright well, so assignment agreements and copyright licensing agreements? So I was a moderator for the panel, and so I, was, I, I tried to stay completely neutral without talking about this topic. Um, and I'm working on a blog post, which I'm going to actually commit myself to publishing before this is released. Okay. Um, you got four days. Exactly. Um, I, need, I need that kind of deadline. <laughs> <laughs> um, but but um, I think one of the things that I really liked that Richard does is that he breaks down the differences between um, or, or talks about the distinguishing traits of CLAs versus CAs, copyright assignment versus a license agreement, and where, and most importantly to me, where it doesn't make sense to draw a line between them. So I, I like that he talks about, in, in his talk, he talks about, you know, 
maximalist CLAs, and that's his shorthand. Um, and I actually was inspired by that in our panel because I talked about, um, I, I basically said that, that, that the issue for me that I wanted to discuss was whether or not it was appropriate to assign the right to relicense to any one entity. Yeah, I, I agree with that completely. I, I think that people have focused on copyright assignment as if it were the, this huge thing that, that is so much bigger than anything you might actually do. And, and what Fontana calls the maximalist CLAs, uh, or you call, I think you called it, but the panel called it rights transfer as well. Because uh, there's lots of ways to transfer broad, powerful rights around. And I would call it re, like a relicensing grant. Yeah. Well, I mean, sometimes they do more than that, though. That's the thing. As Richard talked about, some of the weird yeah. things you find in some of these CLAs and, and, and some of the indemnities you, you give the other side, and sometimes they're only one way. I mm -hmm. mean, I, my, my biggest, when I sort of, I, I, I've been known to, and you can read on Identica, or I'm going to link to the Identica thread where I, de I live dented Fontana's talk, and also uh, I'm, there's, there's other places online you can see on Identica and elsewhere where I've discussed this, and I get into the nits and, and details of all this. But when you step back a minute, my biggest concern is that a lot of developers either don't have time or an interest to read a lot of these agreements. They're sometimes pressured into signing them just to get their patch in, and they really don't know what they're agreeing to. That's that's the meta issue here, is that they, they don't fully grok what they have to agree to because some other important things being withheld from them, i.e. getting your patch merged, waiting for them to sign. And well, and there's also so much to learn and understand that's, you know, that's legalese, right? I mean, it's hard enough to figure out what the different licenses are and which ones you're comfortable with and which ones you aren't. Right. That then to put the, a whole other layer of, of agreements, and this is one of the things that the, um, you know, Harmony Project is trying to address is the idea that, you know, coming up with standardized language means that you can see the agreements for what they are and not get bogged down in the you know, in what the texts are, but the problem with that is that, you know, not get basically standardize the language so that you're talking about, you know, which, which provisions you're, you're including, which provisions you're not. But, you know, I think that even that is often a subtlety, um, because if you have standardized provisions, they look like they're, they're blessed, um, and that, that, that everyone should use them. Um, and that, that's a right. problem with the process. And, and Harmony has uh, what, what I've said on my blog, and I'll link to my blog post about Harmony specifically, as well as Richard Fontana's uh, blog post about Harmony specifically, that it's ha it suffers from the Creative Commons problem, which is Creative Commons has some great licenses, as we've seen, and it has some horrible licenses, as we've seen. And the, they're trying to basically make it amoral in some sense, but in the end it becomes... A moral issue because some of the licenses have a good ethical standpoint, a good moral standpoint, and some of them don't. And that's the same is true with Harmony. It might be possible. Actually, I don't even know for sure if it is, but maybe it's possible to configure Harmony in a way that I would see as a moral way to do a CLA. I think that there is. The last well, time I checked, no, actually, really, no, if you're talking 1.0, you there is really not. Not in 1.0. Maybe has there been has been any I release? Thought, I thought. I thought that there was a. Well, I, don't, I haven't looked. Not at if it you like while, the Faro so GPL. I'm there's no sure. way. Oh, oh. Okay. <laughs> For example, um, anyway. So it, it's uh, it's troubling to me that process, and generally these agreements are troubling to me. I, I think Font. I, I'm very well. I don't agree with it fully. I'm very, very sympathetic to Fontana's point that that aren't the licenses we have good enough? Isn't inbound equals outbound good enough for most projects? And I think for most projects it is. I think he makes a good point, but I think we have the same problem that you know. That, that we, we have the problem of, 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 of a reasonable relicensing. So, for example, 
the problem of the dead developer. So the developer that, you know, basically there are, there are plenty of situations that we've encountered that you and I together, Bradley, have encountered, um, in our, in our work where for some reason or another, a project needs to be relicensed. And this could be because it needs to be relicensed in order for the license to be compatible with some code that um, was released under a different license but wants to be incorporated into the software to add some important feature set or something. Um, another reason could be, and we've seen this too, that the licenses have a problem with them, either because they weren't well written to begin with and people didn't realize, or because the law has changed. And I can really, really see there being a change in the law, particularly when it comes to the disclaimer of warranties mm -hmm. or some innocuous provisions that are in our, our seemingly innocuous provisions in our licenses now. And I worry that, oh, so, so basically in order to deal with that situation, you need to relicense it, which is sometimes not a problem. If you know all of the contributors and can contact them, they can relicense it. But that's often not the case because a lot of the developers are are either not contactable anymore or some of them have died. And when you're in the situation of a dead developer and you need to relicense the code, you have to explain to their family or, or whoever succeeds them. Yeah, and, and I, I know you have to do that. In fact, I may be one of the few people in the world who's been on the phone with a crying mother who was trying to get her, me trying to get her, her uh, son's copyrights relicensed. I've actually done that work, literally. Yeah, I, I spoke to a spouse. Um, and it was, and got the response, well, my husband really wanted, you know, my, my husband, um, he wanted to provide for us and it's software and clearly you care about it and therefore, you know, you have to pay for it. Hmm. Uh, um, I mean, eventually I explained about the public interest of free software and, hmm. you know, uh, but it's a really, really tough conversation and as software gets more mature and has a more diverse contributor base. I think that it's a real problem. But it's a red herring to say that CLAs are the only way to solve this. There's two things in GPLv3 that help with this. First of all, there's the traditional or later option, well, which has existed. That's hey, hey, a let, meta. Me, let me finish it. So, uh, so the or later, you can choose in the beginning of a project to say or later, GPLv3 or later, GPLv2 or later, which means when the project wants to switch, they can switch. The second thing, that's this GPLv3 specific now, there is the proxy uh, assignment, proxy um, uh, uh, designation in V3. You can designate a proxy for licensing decisions in V3. And so if you use V3 and you name proxy in the project, you can, you can solve yeah. that problem too. I actually think that that's a little bit of a red herring description as well, because I think that um, you're basically this. These are other ways that you are granting the right to relicense to somebody else. Um, this is another type type of relicensing grant. But you're giving it to the whole world. In the case of or later. Well, I was going to say the or later you're giving it to the FSF. You're giving the FSF the judgment of what what can be in that relicense and what can't be. And for a lot of people, that's very reasonable. For other people, it's not. I, I know. So I understand that. It solves the problem with respect to people who trust the FSF. And right. And for the people who don't can the, use the proxy. And the FSF alone. And the proxy, um, the proxy is, it's, it's valid as a solution, but it's another relicensing grant. And, but so is a CLA. And so you're, the, you're, you're, you're basically encouraging the pro, you know, you, you, you're, you're not encouraging the consolidation of those proxies. So Karen, you either believe the situation is completely unsolvable or you agree that there needs to be a solution. If you agree it's unsolvable, then it's no, unsolvable. No, but if you agree there needs to be a solution, I've just said the proxy is a solution, just like the CLA is a solution. It's a different type of solution. Yeah. Well, I'm saying that, but I'm saying it's basically the same. It's the same kind of solution. It's not a different solution. It's the same thing. 
it's similar. I wouldn't say it's exactly the same because you don't go beyond the license that was already No, there. it's baked in. Right. So it should be, the licenses should should be used in this way, and that's why they're designed that way, so we don't have to have these things. Now, that said, I think the copyright assignment has some serious value. I think, if, if in particular, it's funny because I, I I didn't say this on the panel because I was too scared because I was afraid Mark was going to use it as a rhetorical tactic. Mark Shuttleworth, I mean, was going to use it as a rhetorical tactic with me. But I actually agree a little teeny bit with something Mark said, which is that if you don't, truly don't want the responsibility of taking care of your copyrights in the sense that you want the GPL enforced but you don't want to do it yourself, assigning to an organization that will act in a way that you feel comfortable with is a good idea and that's many See, developers... See, this is what I wanted you to say on the panel. <laughs> and the reason I didn't say it, I'll be quite honest with Karen, you and all our listeners, that I was very nervous and I told this to people around the conference, I was very nervous. Mark Shuttleworth is a very good debater. He's very debonair. He's very um, uh, charismatic. And my fear was that if I gave him an inch, he'd take a mile and I'd lose. So I couldn't say this. See, on the but panel. I think that I think that having copyright assignment or a relicensing grant to a nonprofit with excellent governance is the right answer. Like I think the answer is easy, and it it addresses all of the things that people are worried about with the assignment to um, to for profit entities. And it also solves, you know, and by good governance, I mean two things. I mean, good governance, I mean the promise um, to only license it in certain ways going forward, much like the FSF has pioneered. And two, I mean good governance in the sense of having a nonprofit that you really trust, and that might probably means having a, a broad voting membership and um, having ways to overrule the board if need be. Are you uh, are you pre-announcing something the Gnome Foundation might do, or is this just an idea? <laughs> no, this is just this is and, and actually, well, I'm, I want to talk about it because I think that there's a lot of anti-copyright assignment sentiment now, mm-hmm. not in, in the Gnome community, but also in in all well, across it's been in the Gnome community since like day zero. Absolutely, <laughs> but and 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 across the free software communities, um, and I think that we've gotten so confused about what we're talking about that even this thing that I'm talking about, which is an easy solution that I think is, um, you know, is, is a, is a safe and, and, and right way to go is being, is being just completely dismissed without even thinking about. Yeah, I, I, you have a really good point there, Karen. I, I really actually do agree with you on that. And I, I think that FSF is a great example of an organization that's been an excellent steward of copyrights uh, for its member, for its, well, I say member, but, but for its GNU projects that do assign. You're saying member projects because you're, yeah, yeah, we're sitting in conservancy's yeah, office space. But, <laughs> yeah, I don't want to confuse anybody between the two organizations because I am affiliated with both, but, but FSF for its GNU projects that are copyright assigned to FSF, it's done an excellent job, I think, enforcing the GPL, um, taking care uh, of the copyrights and registering them and all those sorts of things you have to do with copyrights to make them, to make them the best they can be for free software. So I think that, that that can be done and it is useful. And I agree with you that there's this, it's, 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 in, it's quite frankly fashionable now to be against copyright yes. assignment in a really heavy way. It used to be a debate and now it's kind of like a fashionable thing to be against it. I think once Mark moves on to his next shiny thing that he wants to go ranting about, uh, and is done with this, I think that's the moment when we can sort of get get that error out of the room and, and actually talk about the value of it because he's going to manipulate things otherwise. It's, it's like the cadence thing. with well, Mark Shuttleworth was all about this cadence thing, which is in general a good idea, but he was obsessed with it for how it was going to benefit Canonical, etc. And it basically made nobody want to agree about cadence. And now actually what's happened is a lot of projects are doing what is effectively 
what Mark Shuttle was talking about. They're talking to upstream and downstream to make sure that they release on the same time. So while the idea is might be a good one, the implementation is bad because it's coming from a for-profit company that has these interests. And once that for-profit company stops pushing for it for these weird ulterior motives, uh, we can actually talk about it in a way that's, I think, valuable. I think it'll take time to get there. Yeah, I just think it's really important to talk about now uh, because because of I think we're just gonna make decisions be based on the current sentiment. So anyway, I'm, I mean that's one of the things. And I, I other than that, I largely agree with everything that Richard said in his talk. I just thought that that was the one piece that hadn't really been addressed, and I think that he suggested in his talk that um, that that wasn't a problem. Right. And I didn't well, understand. This is the, the, what we're living now is the damage that proprietary relicensing has caused. The, you look at the business models of the old troll tech and the business model of MySQLAB and the business model of Red Hat Cygnus product and the business model that Mark Shuttleworth wants to build for Canonical. Those business models are, are, are problematic and they're bad for the GPL. Uh, and they have sort of tainted the issue of copyright assignment. I forgot to mention the, the open office thing, which is another one that's had, that's been tainted in this way. So we have to kind of get the bad taste of all that out of our mouths before we can actually talk about how we could use these agreements in good ways. And for me, I just think that this means going back and really supporting the free, the nonprofit side of free software. Well, that I'm always for. Well, we, you and I are broken records on that on that score, but this is one of those points where I, I think it's really important. Yeah. Well, they are. You realize they are all now listening to a show with two executive directors of nonprofit organizations in the free software space. So now more than ever, it's just going to be blah 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 nonprofit, blah 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 nonprofits are great. Too right. But actually, on the the other side, I'm I'm no longer acting as a nonprofit lawyer all the time. So. Well, yeah, that means you can focus more on advocacy rather than other things, right? Yeah. I mean, I. I mean, I, yes. Because you couldn't do as much of that when you were when you were less lawyer. lecturing, more advocacy, I guess. Yeah, I mean, that's. I, I think that I think people are showing that they want to hear you advocating. I mean, because frankly, when you had to be the lawyer all the time, there was lecturing. But now people have seen your GNOME uh, talk from OzCon, your GNOME slash medical devices, and people see that as awesome advocacy, and they're obviously really excited about it. So I think people are glad to see that. It's really fun to be talking about non-legal issues. Yeah, and, and, and being an advocate. So instead of being a, a cautious person, we need the cautious people. Everybody needs a good lawyer. I mean, that's sort of true these days. It's sad, but true. Sad, uh, but true. Yeah. But, uh, but, uh, but I think you personally, people, I think are glad to see you out there advocating. And I'm relieved. It's a lot more fun. <laughs> yes, it really is. You, you didn't. So far. So yeah. far, it's been more fun. I will see if I, if I miss it. Yeah, that's what I was trying to ask, basically, is if you if you miss it. Yeah, I wouldn't be yet because it's only been a few months. Yeah, it hasn't been very long yet. Yeah. Um, and there's been plenty of pro bono lawyering. <laughs> so, that's true. You've been doing some for Conservancy, which we appreciate. Some for Conservancy, for some in relation to an amicus brief that was filed for PubPat, and uh, some for question copyright, and some for Software Freedom Law Center. <laughs> is there anything there we should, I, I'm not going to promise this because I'm asking Karen right now, is there anything in, on that stuff you want to link to in the show notes, or is there nothing that could be linked to, do you think? Uh, we might be able to link okay. to something. We'll, 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 look, we'll look to see if there's one of those things that Karen just mentioned, because you just sort of ratted off some things people might be interested. We'll at least link to websites of the related orgs you just mentioned, because uh, we don't mention them that often. We have mentioned all those orgs at one point, but they aren't mentioned that often, and people might have forgotten about them. Cool. So, and obviously you like them, because... Because I... Blah, as I was saying, blah, 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 Nonprofits, blah, 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 nonprofits. Blah, blah, blah.
Free is in Freedom is produced by Dan Lynch of halfbakemedia.com. Thanks to Mike Tarantino for our theme music. This episode of Free is in Freedom is licensed under the Creative Commons Attribution Share Alike 3.0 United States License. I think next week we'll move on to a later next week. I did it too. Uh, next episode we'll move on to a, a, a later moment in the past. Okay, yes, that's correct. It'll be much <laughs> later by then.